Welcome to Game Studies Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for learning everything you might want to know about the academic discipline of game studies, or at least the parts of it that we've read. I'm Michael Lutz. I'm Cameron Konzelman. Uh, and if this is your first episode of the podcast, just so you know what we do here, uh, Cameron and I have read the same book uh, from Game Studies, um, and we will discuss it now for the next, I don't know, the last episode was like three hours, which is way too long. We don't want to talk for three hours this time. <laughs> which is um, why we're going for five hours this time. <laughs> <laughs> uh so, uh, yeah, normally normally we don't talk for three hours. But anyway, we're going to talk about a book. Um, and the, the last book we talked about was uh, Janet Murray's Hamlet on the Hollow Deck, which is a very uh, sort of important work, I think, in, in game studies, regardless of what you think about it as a theorist or a scholar. Uh, it was very divisive in its time. I think its legacy is still divisive. So that was partly why I think our last episode was so long as we were unpacking its kind of influence. And this time I thought it would be interesting if we chose something that maybe seemed topically similar, uh, but maybe was a little less well-known. And so we chose uh, Literary Gaming by Astrid Enslin. And this is a 2014 book. It was published by the MIT Press. Uh, and Enslin herself is a professor of modern languages and cultural studies at the University of Alberta. Um, she was actually, when she wrote this book just for context, she was in the UK. She was at Bangor University. Um, and this was her third book. Uh, she wrote two more uh, prior to this. Uh, the first one was Canonizing Hypertext. Uh, and then the second one was The Language of Gaming. Um so you might notice that there's kind of a theme here. She is specifically interested in uh, games as they deploy language, both written and spoken, I think. And she maybe tends more toward the written and what we've talked about or what we're going to talk about. Um, and she's also edited like three collections. So, I mean, she's she's got the scholarship, right? She's putting in the hours. Uh, and yeah, no, that's the book, uh, Literary Gaming. Really quickly, I, there, was a, there was a great summation of, of what was uh, in the past and what is to come. I want to I issue a correction really quickly to last oh, episode. Yes, 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 yes. Um, we intimated, slash said, <laughs> probably just said, um, that, uh, that Janet Murray... Uh, was was confused or brought out of the moment rather by a production of Peter Pan. Mm -hmm. We were wrong. That was yes. a citation that she was making to Suzanne La uh, Suzanne Langer Langer's yeah yes. Suzanne Langer's book Feeling and Form: A Theory mm -hmm. of Art. Yes, no, that was uh, inconsistent note taking on our part, conflating her with her source. Sometimes you just get too excited about the Peter Pan part and you forget Sometimes. who does what. You know? That's okay. Uh, but so, Peter Pan doesn't yes. show up in this book even a little bit. Not in the least. Um, and what's sort of interesting is that uh, even though I think arguably in some, some sense this book is carrying forward a lot of the themes and ideas that uh, Murray was interested in, uh, specifically basically kind of like what, what uh, does a narrative as we sort of understand traditional literary narratives um what do those things look like once they start uh being produced with or sort of like bubbling up from uh digital and computational technologies uh nevertheless this is an extremely different book in terms of tone approach uh the sorts of things it's talking about it is just almost it's a like a 
180 is not even the right way to describe it. Uh, it's more like a really hard 90 degree turn off into something else. Do you agree? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I you know the as far as I understood, kind of from the way that Murray talked about her own background and us kind of like looking at her her CV and things like that. You know, she was a uh, like a Victorianist. Mm-hmm. Uh, scholar kind of humanities focused who then kind of saw the interesting parts of technology or or computation and kind of moved over into that right so she works at mit things like this um at a time when that's kind of forming in the academy right like the idea of this kind of hybrid approach between the humanities and and computation um is not not necessarily new in the 1990s but certainly like it's not as omnipresent as it is now uh insulin uh, is is fully brought up within that paradigm, and in, in mm-hmm. fact, kind of looking at her background, there's a lot more. Um, I don't know. I mean, she she's worked in linguistics before. She's worked mm-hmm. in like digital humanities, computational interpretation of texts. Um, it looks like she's done a lot, of, a lot of like lexical work in that way. And so, mm-hmm. this is a book that doesn't start from. How do narratives work? Which is, I think, where where Murray starts from, right? Right. Like, how does narrative work, and then therefore, how does it change? This is how does a technology or a medium or a specific type of computational affordance? How does that produce narratives of different types or that land on a spectrum? Mm-hmm. So, so in some ways, like this is this is a, a book that I think picks up the baton from Murray, but without having to do any of the groundwork of what Murray's doing because it's been proved like we have you know between the publication of this book and the publication of Murray's book there's uh, almost 20 years something yeah, like that nearly short of 20 years um, and so it's to insulin's uh, benefit that that you don't have to do that kind of basic work anymore now we are kind of on to the work of systematization and categorization and uh, tool building. So mm-hmm. all this stuff exists. Um, how do we understand it? Right. Um, and yeah, there's the, the approach to this book is, uh, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong, right? But the, the, I would say the overall, the broad approach uh, is very much a kind of uh, descendant of the Nordic game studies model. Or, like, uh, Scandinavian game studies, or however we're supposed to, like, call that whole group of folks. Mm -hmm. Um, And uh, it has, like, also the the structure of the book, and I think I want to, like, sort of lay this out, because the structure of the book is kind of strange. It's very, um, what I think of as European, uh, because a lot of, like, continental European books that I read uh, from uh, sort of, like, history uh, like I've read some some his, like books in the field of history that had like this exact same structure, where the first two chapters are theory and method, um, sort of explaining you know who are all the thinkers that you're bringing to the table and how did you do your analysis, and then the remainder of the book, um, which is an additional like uh, six no maybe eight chapters, 
No, no, no. It's an additional seven chapters because the first chapter is the introduction. Um, so then, like, just the remainder of the book is all of the analysis, like putting into practice uh, the ideas that you have uh, laid out in your first two chapters. Um, and so I think probably when we're talking about this, we're going to talk more about the, the theory and method stuff and less about the specific reading chapters uh, because they're more like case studies of, of things, of claims that she's already made. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I don't know, you know, this is, this is the benefit of doing this podcast to some degree, right? Because I, I feel like I'm pretty well read in game studies, but I'm well read in a particular slice of game studies of, of <laughs> you know, um, books that have the... I don't know, that have objects that I'm kind of predis predisposed to caring about and mm -hmm. um, or, or that I work on. And I don't really work on hypertext. I don't really work on uh, interactive fiction. Like, those are just not things that, that I've, uh, I've ever done scholarship on. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I don't know how much, like, I have a hard time, and, and, you know, I guess I'll kick over to you for talking about the context of that, but mm -hmm. I don't know... Um, if the history of hypertext research in game studies tends to look like this, I mean, I agree that this does have a particular kind of Northern European style. I mean, this looks closer to Jesper Yule than it mm -hmm. does Shira Chess, right? Right. To, to speak yes. in terms of things that, that we've covered in this podcast already. Um, and, and I wonder, too, if the reason for that is like this is a book that is dedicated to providing you with a big method from which you can go do your own analysis, as opposed right. to Shira Chess's book, which is trying to give you a picture of American culture, basically, over a, a certain time period. Um, right. Right, so they, they kind of have different kinds of goals to them. And, like, I find this to be a productive style of writing. Like, it, like in my own writing, I, I tend to do this. I tend to do, you know, a big section. Well, I guess I'll say it this way. As a humanities scholar, we are not often encouraged to do a big method section and then a big analysis section. That's not mm -hmm. necessarily the way that humanities scholarship tends to go. That right. tends to be closer to, uh, I don't know, the the human sciences kind of stuff. Um, right. And then computational work. So I have, a, in my heart, I have um, a love for this type of writing because this is the way that I myself uh, do do academic writing. Um, but yeah, I think for the most part, we're going to be focused in on how, how she builds that method and how she builds a big toolbox for doing analysis of games. And, and I think by necessity, uh, we're going to have to push on those limits to some degree because we're not only concerned with, uh, you know, it, by we, I mean you and I, Michael, we are not <laughs> only concerned with like the, uh, the box of games that, that she is interested in. We're interested in all kinds of games. And so I'm interested in putting these tools to the test on other objects too. Right. Exactly. Uh, Cameron, because as you point out, uh, the, the thing that she works toward, um, is, is this methodology, uh, called Ludo stylistics, which we will talk about extensively, um, <laughs> as we go forth. But essentially the, the position that she starts with, um, is that there are two fields. One is literature and one is games. And we are, we being, I guess, the people who are live in, uh, you know, 2014 or the years prior to her uh, when she's writing this book, um, we're starting to see uh, these fields encroach on one another. 
Um, that is to say, like, you know, we start seeing literature and art that is informed by the, the cultural presence of games, and we see games uh, that take up uh, certain themes or questions or ideas from traditional literary work. Um, and what she wants to do, what Insulin wants to do, is develop this method uh, that can describe these uh, objects in terms of both their readerly and their playerly characteristics, as she puts it. And this is how she says it in the introduction. Um, you have to do a lot of definitional work to get to where she wants to go, right? Yes. We're like, we, you have to, uh, in, like, as someone who has a lot of kind of formal training in philosophy and, like, theory, capital T theory in the 20th century, I can appreciate going out there and just making some definitions happen. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm all about it. Like, uh, this is this is something that, that I'm down with. Mm -hmm. um, and so, like, I, I mean, I guess maybe it's useful to just talk about, like, several several of the terms that are operative here, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. To, to maybe start with. So, in order to build up to the theory of functional ludostylistics, which is our, like, payoff toolbox, yes. right? So, one of these is going to be literary Yes. What's what's literature, Michael? Since you're the the PhD in literature. Well, well, Cam. Uh, uh, quoting from Insulin herself here, uh, she defines literature, um, or rather, how she puts it. Right. She doesn't define literature, uh, but what she says is that when she is using uh, terms like literature or literary, she is referring to quote artifacts of verbal art in the broadest possible sense, where literariness in the sense of linguistic foregrounding is part of the authorial intention and where human language, spoken or written, plays a significant aesthetic role. So in terms of definitions, right, she's she's come out here with this definition, which I think is pretty functional, um, but it also tells you exactly the sorts, well, not really the sorts of games that she's going to talk about, but it tells you a lot about the sorts of games that she is not going to talk about. Um, and so a lot of this this early work that she is doing with her definitions, right, is kind of like setting down uh, uh, boundaries uh, for for her objects, for um, the things that she is wanting to study. And I think that's interesting because, of course, uh, I don't know, being who I am or coming of age when I did, you know, I always kind of bristle when people start talking about uh, fairly limited definitions of art or literature. Uh, but here, I think it's, you know, despite that sort of instinctive, like, oh, so you're not going to talk about... I, it's weird, because it's not like she's di discounting a lot of games I do like, right? It's not like I'm like, oh, you're not going to talk about Call of Duty and how that's a literary game? <laughs> um, but, that's my job. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, but it tells you, uh, basically, you know, she's... I mean, she's, she's got a lot of work to do, and I think this is actually a pretty effective thing. It's just to be like, okay, so... And it, it lines up with her scholarly trajectory, right? The things that she is interested in. Um, she, she is looking at literary games as uh, games that quite literally <laughs> uh, engage with the uh, generic history of literature and kind of its uh, medium of language. Well, so I'm, that, that's kind of a, and, and when I'm presenting questions about this book, this is a book that I found very difficult, not necessarily in content. I think that, that she's pretty clear about like her descriptions, but I, I had a hard time with this book of figuring out how all the pieces fit together. Mm -hmm. um, to, to kind of make the big puzzle that is the book. And and maybe this is something that you can help me out with and probably help some readers out with too. Like, is this, 
she's she's arguing that literariness is a function of language basically right that like right that reading and the play of language and we'll mm-hmm. talk about this her specific use of the word play later but that the play of language produces literariness right right and so for me like in in my neck of the woods the way i would think of literature like capital l literature or literariness is purely like a generic constraint it's genre right so at some point during the 20th century with the onset of like American modernism and modernist writing, you have the formulation of a big set of, of texts that, you know, in the 1960s and 70s pay off in like John Updike, right? Yeah. That coheres into something that is literature as opposed mm-hmm. to other generic uh, stuff. So as, as opposed to science fiction or the Western or something like that. But this is like a formal claim, right? She's saying that li- the attention to language generates literariness. Is that a thing in literary studies? Uh, like, is her definition closer to the way that people in English talk about this? It, that's an interesting question, um, because I thought about this, too, because I don't think in my my many years as, a, as an English scholar uh, that that's been the rationale that I have heard. Um, the rationale that she does give, that, that Insulin herself gives, right, is she's uh, basically pulling um, from the Latin, uh, litera, which of course is the, the word uh, that gives us literature and literary and things like that. Uh, but what that means in Latin um, is just quite literally letter. Uh, mm. Like written letter, the alphabet, or like a letter that you write, um, and so from like a, a classical context, right? There is a a field that we might call literature that is concerned with um, not just how we think of literature as kind of a a, a fictional. Um, like the explorations of, of fictional narratives, right? Uh, but uh, for for the you know Romans, uh, the Greeks and Romans, the the literary arts would have encompassed things like uh, rhetoric and composition, right? Like all all forms of language and communication, um, as like or rather like as those things are concerned with uh, yeah communication between people um, and. So she says, right, that that this foregrounding quality of language then is what she says uh, is is literary um, for these games. And I am not quite sure if that's something that I would agree with, like in in terms of act like literature in its broadest sense, because she Mm -hmm. also says um, what all works of verbal art have in common, however... And so verbal art, so this is written and uh, spoken, uh, is an aesthetic concern with the structural and thematic elements of their own form, genre, or medium, and the way in which they express this uh, self-reflexive agenda can be described in terms of subversive play. So bracketing the ending part about subversive play exactly, uh, I think almost any sort of like media, I don't know, channel, right, from films to uh, literature in the most narrow sense to video games are always kind of pointing at their own uh, their own structural and thematic like thingness, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I, this could be something that's kind of shared in our theoretical background, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, I it, the way that I was the way I was brought up, in, in my day, um, w- with my kind of theory of medium, is that yeah, that that the 
that things are always pushing at their boundaries, and it's precisely that pushing that allows it to be kind of unique. So, for example, the the birth of the sitcom is mm-hmm. about structuring narrative along very specific beats in between sponsorship and commercial breaks, right? Right. And like that is part of the medium of television, um, and and that that constrains every television show on broadcast television at least for a long time. Um, you know, the kind of, uh, guns work on the cinema of attraction stuff is kind of a very formative claim in cinema studies. And that is making a similar kind of argument about the relationship between medium and its content. Um, and you know, maybe that's a fair, not a new claim, but a fairly new claim in the history of cinema studies. Um, you know, and it's 70 or 80 year history. So, um, I, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I would be interested in, in maybe someone picking this up. You know, this is for the the, the students at home to pick up. <laughs> but uh, I would be really interested in someone taking this claim and, and kind of looking at the literariness of, in this very specific, you know, in her very specific framework, the literariness of television, of film, of radio, and things like that. I mean, you know, even H.U.L. or not H.U.L.'s, but Orson Welles's War of the Worlds, <laughs> right? The broadcast is very particularly a um, a piece of radio drama that is aware of its medium and is pushing its medium uh, in very right. particular ways. So I don't know. Right. Yeah. No. So I don't think I don't think it's like necessarily a wrong definition or a wrong way to go about this. I think it's actually very effective in terms of limiting the sorts of things that uh, insulin has to look at. Uh, it's 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 that it's a good scholarly move or a methodological move. Um, but I also would maybe like find some time to quibble with with that notion of literariness as uniquely suited to well, uniquely verbal, and then like the verbality, the verbality, the verbiousness, the linguisticness of all of this <laughs> stuff. Anyway, being somehow especially conducive to um, sort of self reflexivity. Yeah, and yeah, and, and it also feels like this is something that kind of extends throughout the book. It's an interesting contrast, to, in fact, to Janet Murray kind of uh, being dismissive of the the quote unquote postmodernists and the way that they think about narrative as open ended and kind of ungrounded and things like that. There's kind of a focus in this book of uh, privileging that kind of of content of like mm-hmm. language play for the sake of language play or of generating kind of big open ended, uh, experiences. So she talks about, um, the, I'm blanking on the, the blue lacuna later, which we'll yes. kind of, uh, briefly address, which is kind of like this big, massive, uh, interactive fiction piece that is open ended and produces all kinds of different narrative chunks to it, depending on how you interact with it. Um, and I think that, like, in the if we, you know, applied Janet Murray's framework of like what is a good and, and what is a bad kind of bit of cyber drama, uh, it would. It, I don't think it would fit in that in that uh, paradigm as like a good piece. So I, I like that. All of that is to say, I like that the the definitions that insulin gives us allows us to kind of valorize some of the things that I like. Um, <laughs> but it valor, but but it is in fact valorizing literary work after literary modernism. I think, mm-hmm. right. So after James Joyce, after the explosion of thinking about writing as its own medium or writing yes. as a medium. Yes, yes. No. Um, and I think uh, that becomes 
clear as we sort of continue throughout the introduction, um, because one of the other things she ends up uh, having to do is define a kind of group of what she calls non-games, um, which is the sort of thing like if you started talking about like non-games on Twitter right now, of course, like you would just get dragged to hell, essentially. Um, but because that sort of argument has been so poisoned uh, because of certain reactionary elements and gamers and things like that. Uh, but for Murray, or not for Murray, um, for Enslin, non-games, and this is, I think this is an interesting point to make, um, non-games are basically art objects that are influenced by the aesthetics of games, uh, but do not actually uh, implement anything like ludic mechanics, right? So, uh, whereas the the literary half of this argument is bound up in this idea about language and sort of um, objects uh, that foreground their own linguistic qualities uh, in sort of the, the place of the reader or player in decoding them, um, the gaming side is very... I, not, not not very strongly, but like it's very much like there has to be some sort of mechanical element. There has to be some sort of modeling, right? It's not. I don't know what a great example, like a great and accessible example of a non-game is by Insulin's definition. Um, do you happen to have one? Because she she gives an example, but I don't think anyone at home knows it. I don't know. Well, I mean, let's we could use your work for example. We could do that. <laughs> Two big uh, Michael Lutz games. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, My father's long long legs. It's one. Right. Okay. Yes, that's one. I did Correct. that. Correct. <laughs> you made it. Uh, and then the uncle who works 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 or worked works 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 for Nintendo, right? Yes. Um. The my father's long old legs is a linear narrative, right? Mm -hmm. with, with some some interesting um, production and sound design and things like that around it, right? But you're clicking through it in in the most basic way, um, and then the uncle who works for Nintendo. Uh, you're having to make some choices, and in fact, playing that game and making particular choices in particular ways actually produces different endings for the game, right? Right. I, I think My Father's Long Long Legs, not a game. Yes, in this paradigm, obviously. all right. At least by at least by this definition, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's a good point, right? So. <laughs> Now I'm going to talk about my own work. Do uh, yeah, I, like, I, yeah, I don't. This is the benefit that I think of us <laughs> having made things before, is we can talk about them, right? And like um, specifically, also, right? Myself as a person who who is very interested in literary gaming and whatever that might mean. Uh, so my father's long, long legs is structurally has two halves, and one is very. Uh, like it's it's multi-form in the sense that you can choose how you go through it, but it's all taking you to the same place. Mm -hmm. uh, and then sort of the the trick that I designed for that game uh, is that the first half is very straightforward, like hypertext. It's text on a screen. You know, you're clicking links and things are moving. Um, and then the second half has the the narrator go into a basement that has been turned into a labyrinth, uh, and you have to illuminate the text with your cursor as if it were a flashlight. And like, that's how you get forward now is you have to like search out the links in the darkness. Um, and from the reader's perspective or the player's perspective, this very much feels like, you know, they are wandering through a maze, right? There are directions, there are places to go. Uh, but actually, right, mechanically, what I'm doing sort of behind the curtain, there's no actual like f way to get through that maze, right? It's all just a, it's a clock counting down to when um, it's going to move you to the next thing. Mm -hmm. So you think you are in this game-like space where you are navigating a maze, um, but really 
you're just kind of clicking links like while I slowly introduce more sound effects or whatever. Um, so yeah. I think, yeah, that's a good example by uh, what insulin would be by a non-game, right? It gives this weird feeling of gaminess, but doesn't actually have any sort of what we think of as, as like rules or solutions or puzzles or what have you. Yeah, the language so. that she repeatedly uses for that kind of experience is she says it has minim, minimum ergodic qualities or something like that. But, right. but basically a minimum amount of basic work you have to do, but it is not what she calls cognitive work. You're not having to solve a puzzle. Um, right. You're not having to, I don't know... Um, play a mini game she uses the word the language of mini game a lot to discuss mm -hmm. like actual ludic things right and i think uh the ergodic uh point is is a good one because um so she pulls the the um idea of the ergodic out of arseth out of cybertext mm -hmm. uh and uh that is defined so Whereas Arseth uh, is trying to talk about sort of cybertext and like, what does it mean to read a cybertext as opposed to a traditional book? Um, he talks about ergodic, uh, what is what is a good phrase for this? Like ergodic reading or like ergodic literature as yeah. literature that requires a kind of kinetic component. Uh, non-trivial is, is kind of the key term here. The non-trivial kinetic component um, of interaction. So uh, as opposed to regular literature where you're just like turning pages or something um that's minimal right that is trivial physical interaction with the art object uh ergodic literature cybertext video games are going to require um, a different sort of physical action on the behalf of the interactor um and for insulin there are therefore sort of two different types of um like ludicity going on uh one of them is the the ergodic ludicity of uh here is an here is an object that requires me to interact with it non-trivially in order to produce certain outcomes um but then there's also cognitive ludicity um which is a thing that is very common in literature by her account but is again like it it, it is not as uh, sort of physically interactive so cognitive ludicity is something like if you're reading a mystery novel and you're trying to keep track of the clues and figure out before you get to the final page who did it right um and sort of other types of experimental or uh older types of uh weird literature so something like uh uh, Lawrence Stern's Tristram Shandy that has a lot of like weird typographical stuff in it uh, that we would recognize as sort of um, anticipating a lot of postmodernist literature, which is also sort of weird and gamey um, without actually being mechanically gamey. Uh, that's all cognitive ludicity, right? The sort of fun of puzzling together the plot when it's coming at you in really odd or scattershot ways. Um, yeah, so for example, like if you've read. Um like Don DeLillo's Mao Two, right? Mm -hmm. which, which has uh, two competing, or not two competing, but like an A plot and a B plot. One of which is uh, about a man writing a novel that is about a child being held in a basement in Sarajevo or some somewhere like that. Um, mm -hmm. And then there is a B plot about a child being held in a basement in Sarajevo. And there are all these kinds of inter interludes and interconnections between them. And it is unclear if one is the fiction being produced in the other world or, you know, what's going on with that. Um, and so, like, there might not be a full outcome to it, right? But mm -hmm. it's that kind of um, compression of all kinds of cognitive activities. 
Right. And so for Enslin, what literary games do is they use both of these types of ludicity um, in differing amounts, of course. Right. But they uh, sort of pull these uh like the cognitive ludicity and the the ergodic ludicity together in interesting configurations. Um, and this is sort of then what her her whole method of functional ludo stylistics is is supposed to give us a kind of vocabulary or a toolkit for talking about talking about these uh, objects that uh, require a sort of types of not not different types of interaction exactly but like types of interaction or attention that we historically take as very separate um and so she says that ludostylistics uh, incorporates elements of ludology ludonarratology ludosemiotics and mediality that's a lot of stuff and i don't actually know uh in this book i'm not quite sure what mediality means uh, in this case, right? Because I, yeah. I, like, if you were just to say the word mediality to me in a general sense, I would assume that you were talking about what, what, kind of in my cluster of fields we would call like medium specificity arguments, right? So, right. how does cinema formally, you know, by its very nature, its essence, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, how is it different from um, a book, you know? Right. Um, but I don't, I don't know. I don't think that that's what she's talking about here but i don't i never really got a sense of what she was talking about so i i i'm going to be honest i don't know either i have a better sense of um you know things like ludo ludo narratology or ludo semiotics um and uh but sort of the mediality the medium specificness uh that you point out i don't think as i as you said i don't think that's maybe what she's going for i'm not sure what the mediality means here either yeah yeah, it could just be like the question of what what computation affords, maybe, or, or something like yeah. that. But I don't remember reading in the book, like, a section where that happens. No. Um, so that's sort of, like, that's her introduction, right? Is her kind of laying out, like, here's how I see the, the state of this. Here's how I see the world. And here's how I'm going to kind of bridge these gaps. Or rather, like, here is my methodology that I've kind of developed that I hope is going to bridge these gaps. Um and so then we get to the second chapter, uh, which is called Playing With Rather Than By the Rules. And this is uh, the first chapter in the theory and method section. So this chapter is going to be the theory and the next chapter is going to be the method. Uh, and she starts off the, the theory by talking about the Situationists or the Situationist International, which... Uh, if you, uh, following along at home, do not know what the Situationists were, uh, they were a collective of Marxists uh, in the sort of mid-20th century um, in Europe, primarily, I think, France and Italy. Uh, am I right about Italy? I know France. I, I assume they're kind of everywhere, because there are yeah. certainly people from lots of European capitalists who are involved. But honestly, yeah. I don't know. I mean, I, I know the cluster that you're about to talk about, which yeah. are the French but yes yeah. um so the the sort of big name in in the situationists is uh guy debord uh who comes up with this idea of the society of spectacle and all of this is very interesting uh and i i encourage you to go read about the situationists but this particular stuff is just here for your context uh because this is really not about the, the things that we normally associate with, with the situationists in that sense, right? It's not about spectacle. It's about um, the ways that the situationists advocated a kind of active engagement with the world. Uh, so 
the 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 situationists are also marked as being a uh, a huge influence on the the nineteen sixty eight student uprisings uh, across well everywhere basically right what we think of as um, the huge political upheavals of the late sixties uh, a lot of uh, the sort of demonstrations the sit-ins so on and so forth uh, are given a kind of genealogy from the situationist idea that uh, in order to imagine alternatives to to life under capitalism, um, you kind of have to step aside from the rules of everyday life and recognize things as situations that are in some ways like uh, they're not essentially what they are at the moment, right? There are other possibilities for traversing, like, your college campus than just walking from one building to another or, like, uh, occupying space itself in unconventional or unusual ways can uh, be a, a form of um, protest and sort of, like, I don't know, sort of a, a consciousness raising for, for other people, right, who might not necessarily be on board with you politically or something like that. Uh does that seem fair? I, I think you're doing a good job of describing like the symptom of the mm-hmm. of the bigger project, right? Which is that there is not a difference between politics, aesthetics, infrastructure, the way that we conceive of games in the future, the way that we consider uh, what is the correct form of literary production. All of mm-hmm. those different things are. Uh, interconnected with one another. So, in fact, one can make a film, you mm-hmm. know, or whatever, that does the same kind of work that a, uh, I don't know, a political speech on the, you know, I don't know, in front of a big statue can do. Right. Um, that, that aesthetic experience in particular is part and parcel with everyday life, which is part and parcel with politics. Um, and so you can fiddle with that in a lot of different ways. There's a lot of different, as as Delonda would say, uh, <laughs> it becomes a lot of different knobs that you can turn. Yes, to do different things. Right. Um, yeah. So this is this is where she's going, right, with this kind of uh, interesting read on the Situationists, uh, because uh, that that sense of um, the ability of art or like performance to uh, render palpable certain un- unquestioned or essentialized rules governing society or what have you um, can become a sort of activist tool. Uh, and this dis- this gets described by, by the situationists uh, through two terms. Uh, one is derive and one is detournement. Uh, and I'm just going to say derive and detournement because I hate doing the, the pretentious like French accent thing. Detournement. Yeah. I apologize uh, but- <laughs> to all of the French out there. That's, that's the best I can do. Uh, but these essentially mean, uh, like, the, s- some fairly literal translations would be drift uh, for derive and diversion for detournement. Um, but because we have changed them from English to French, they now mean so much more than that. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> of course, like philosophically, right? Like uh, the the drift is about uh, that that feeling that I just uh, the drift and the diversion are kind of two faces of the same coin. That that way of um, setting yourself up orthogonally toward a structure, a superstructure, what have you, drifting away from the path that you're supposed to be following, or diverting others from it. That sort of thing. Um, but before we get there, she has to run through a whole huge history of art and aesthetics and play, beginning with uh, 
Kant, of course, um, and going up through like Huizinga. So, you know, do you have anything to say about about this history of of art and aesthetics? Yeah, not even just going up through Huizinga, going up through Derrida. I mean, we, oh. we get we get pretty contemporary as far as this kind of like long, uh, you know, long argument gets done. I I think that this this is I, I have a complicated relationship to, to this kind of thing, right? Because mm-hmm. basically in eleven pages or something, uh, she lays out what is basically my entire academic training. <laughs> yes, in in the sense of like the things that I deeply care about in mm-hmm. in uh, uh, a scholarly way are not the things that Inslin cares about in a scholarly way, right? Like, I have not done uh, basically any linguistic uh, reading mm-hmm. in, in, in my time as an academic, but I've done a lot of reading of Kant uh, and a lot of reading of Derrida and a lot of uh, the people that get, show up in between, um, right. in fact. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I think that this is a... If one is interested in learning more about the relationship between all of these things, I would encourage kind of going through her bibliography. She... she um, quotes pretty extensively and, and is pretty dependent on the section on Mihail Speriosu's, uh one of his books. Um, I don't remember the exact one that she is doing, but I would actually encourage people to go check out Dionysus Unbound, which is, or Dionysus Reborn, sorry, um, okay. which is a, I think a later book than the ones that, one that she is citing, but it's basically a history of the philosophy of play. Um, that is written in the 1980s or maybe even the early 1990s. It's very good. Um, and I think that if you're interested in a, you know, what is the construction of the history of, I mean, European and Western philosophy, she's, she, she's not going outside of, of that realm here. Mm-hmm. But if you're interested in that and you find the section interesting, I think finding a deeper dive on that might be very productive. Like I said, I think this is like a serviceable history, but, but for example, like, I don't think that the play that Kant is talking about uh, in relationship to judgment, I don't really think that that's play in the way that we think of it now. And this is a move that gets made pretty often in game studies is to unite that. And uh, Schelling, I think, comes up here as well. The yeah, aesthetic education of man. Yeah. Um, and some of those earlier, and, and then through Nietzsche as well. I think that the way that the history of European philosophy talks about play is not exactly play. I, I it, it seems to me more related to you know, if you latch a door that doesn't uh, quite quite close, you know how you can jiggle the <laughs> handle, it'll chunk a chunk a chunk a chunk a chunk and it makes that noise? Yeah. Like, that to me is what Kant is talking about when he's talking about play. It's the relationship between stability and kind of potential. And I understand how that fits into, like, game-like play, right? I, right. I understand the connection that people are making there, but I do think that there are some, like big philosophical differences and that's why i'm kind of surprised to to not see brian sutton smith show up here mm-hmm. who to my mind is like the uh, he wrote a book called the ambiguity of play which is exactly slicing this this uh, uh particular problem of right he's a psychologist and he's a child psychologist uh who's interested in like how animals play and how children play and how we construct play and things like that um, and 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 in that in the ambiguity of play, he really kind of digs deep into these issues. So um, that's all to say that like I I think this is a fine um, you know construction of the philosophy of play. I think a deeper dive is necessary to really get what's going on there. And like I also yeah. like just to talk about the Derrida. I don't think that structure, sign, and play is not about play the way that we conceive of it. It's not about um, 
it's not even about like aesthetic experience to me. It's about uh, metaphysics. It's about ontology, uh, which is a little different. Right. Um, Yeah. No, I I think I basically agree. And I also, I mean, my my caveat here, me being who I am, um, I'm always like, well, why do we start with Kant? Like, what happened to to pre-modernity? Yeah, absolutely. What what happened to, like, St. Augustine? Right? Like... uh, (laughs) Yeah. And of course, like a lot of like philosophers are not talking about play because I think I think your point, right, is that play as we understand it right now is a fairly new idea, I think. And when I think of like early modern um, English stuff that I have read, and this is, of course, with regard to the theater, of course, people talk about playing uh, in the theater. um, But that means something very different from playing a game. But they do tend to talk about uh, recreation which I think is probably a better way of like, if there were a philosophy of a historical philosophy of recreation, I think that might be a better way of getting to where we want to go here. Um, But regardless, uh, all of this for insulin is in service of uh, building up this, this building up to kind of this idea that she derives from the situationists about avant-garde artwork and how avant-garde artwork uh, can make political points or be um, a tool or an instrument for, for uh, political consciousness raising. Um, so that is kind of the trajectory that she wants to sketch here. For Enslin, right, the, the, the move that she wants to make is to kind of sketch a cognitive ludicity that we've already talked about is kind of the the ludicity that is common to to traditional literature, um, you know, mysteries, mind games, verbal play, that sort of thing. Uh, she wants to kind of see this as something that has always been of concern for philosophy. This issue of of, of literary play, um, and then uh, for her, the situationists are a method of bringing that out of literature proper into kind of the the ludic, the mechanical, that sort of uh, interactive um, artwork uh, paradigm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So one of the things, for instance, that Enslin says, right, is that uh, different readings of a text um, are all interpretations of the same text. That is to say, you know, if, if you or I read uh, something as, as playful, as <laughs> playful is maybe not the right word, right? But as playful as Mao Tu, or as, uh, playful, yes. as, <laughs> or, or as playful as, uh, you know, Tristram Shandy, um, we might come away with uh, different sort of opinions about what that story is or what it means or what's going on there. But at the end of the day, we are doing nothing more than presenting our respective interpretations of the same object. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not sure I agree with her 100% on this, but she argues that uh, uh, different playings, and this is a quote from her, different playings of a game tend to result in entirely different games. By which I understand her to mean, and you may or may not um, have the same opinion, but I think what she means here is uh, that um, when you, like, so when when you and I read the same book, we have read the same book, but when you and I play the same game, 
uh, our experience of that can be fundamentally different in ways that are even weirder than like interpreting literature, right? Depending on whether like if Cam got stuck at a certain point or uh, if I were more familiar with the genre and therefore like traversed it in a different way. Like our phenomenological like sort of experience of what it what that game is as an object um, becomes fundamentally different. Does that seem fair to you? It, it does. Uh, so, so yeah, I, I think I, I have two different things to say about this that, that I think are that you've made me think of. Um, so one is like this is where Call of Duty belongs. <laughs> like this is where call a game like Call of Duty, a contemporary AAA game, right, which doesn't fit in the rest of this book anywhere. This is where it is helpful definitionally, because I I, I take her to mean that like when you and I play Tetris, mm-hmm. we are going to have a different game, like fundamentally, right? Like the way that those blocks fall is going to mm-hmm. be different, right? And our description of like when was the hard part of the game when was the easy part of the game like that that what you're talking about that like phenomenological plenitude or the plenitude of experience that's mm-hmm. going to be very divisive in tetris but like if we both play call of duty 4 and we're playing the c130 section that's a scripted and time sequence we can have a different experience of that basically but that experience is basically where did you fail in it or did you <laughs> succeed right yeah. Which seems to me to be very similar to you and I reading the same book. Yes. No. And, and so, yeah. you know, like, I, this is where I think the, the big scripted, the big contemporary scripted game, uh, even for the time the book comes out, I mean, we, we, uh, Modern Warfare 4 is 2008, 2007, oh, yeah, yeah, something yeah. like that. So, but, it, and, and that's kind of the birth of, you know, if you and I both play the same mission of the first Assassin's Creed game, it's going to be a lot closer to us reading the same book than, than, uh, playing the same game of Tetris, which is interesting to me. That is important because another thing that we uh, need to touch on here, right, is that uh, she is interested, so beyond sort of literary games, she is interested in uh, something called art games, which, quote, seek to undermine the expectations brought toward them by players in order to entertain or rather engage players in a self-critical and or satirical way, right? So this is the assumed player reader for insulin um that they are going to come at these objects complacent in certain ways and a a literary game or an art game is going to make them stop and reflect right so there's there's some phantoms in the background here of kind of like the uh uh the stereotypical like shallow thinking gamer who who has no critical capacity and just wants to like you know push buttons and get reward points or something. Um, and for Enslin, uh, games are going to, literary games are going to, one, implement these kind of, like, traditional gamer mechanics, but two, also always implement them in a way that thwarts what the reader player is supposed to want from them. I think I think it is interesting because, again, it's, it's a similar gesture toward, uh, like, you know, a literary game is a game that foregrounds like language and semiotics or what have you. Um, in that, I think it's useful because it allows her to sort of cut out a lot of things that she's just not interested in talking about that are kind of beside the point. It allows her to delineate her field. Um, but on the other hand, uh, again, like I, I do not think it is uh, difficult to find examples of things that 
we would not necessarily consider art games, but which nevertheless do this. So for instance, I'm going to say like Bioshock, right? Um, which is maybe maybe like leaning a little more toward literary uh, just because of kind of the story that's going on there and some of its pretensions, right? Ayn Rand is coming up again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the big thing for Bioshock, right, is the would you kindly moment, right? That moment where you find out you've been mind controlled by, by the voice in your head this entire time. When the first person shooter has kind of uncritically trained us to to absorb orders from whatever companion is is guiding us through the game, and then it turns out like, oh, your companion is actually actually your enemy, and they've been using you this entire time. That seems to fit this definition of art game in that it makes the reader uh, player reader player, by the way, uh, is her term, right? That's the that's the thing that she comes back to. Um, anyway. Uh, it makes the reader player reflect, right? It's the same thing as like you know, Spec Ops: The Line, um, where the the game sets it up such that uh, you have to do something, and then the game flips around and is like, you didn't do what you thought you were doing. Yeah, right. That is what art games do, but I do not think they would count as art games for Enslin. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't. I I don't know what to do with that, other than the fact that. That's just not the kind of game that she is interested in talking about, right? You know what I mean? Like, um, a, like it's kind of a like an insufficient answer. But I think all that I think all the analysis you've just put forward is factually correct. Um, right. And in the conclusion of the book, she does say, like, look, just the uh, the nature of this book is such that I think she even says, like, uh, well, we can look at the language later. But she says something to the degree of like, I just couldn't talk about three D world games or something like that. Right. Right. And it's like, yeah. well, yeah, but that if that's where. If that's where the friction happens, but also maybe that like that's the true beauty of academic scholarship is that like here's a tool, now we can go and write our Bioshock essay. Right. So Hey there, everybody. Cameron here with your mid-roll ad. We don't have any sponsors, so this is just an ad for us. If you would like to support the show, you can do that through Patreon, which is down in the description below. And this is but one part of the Range Touch Network. Um, and you can support Mages and Murder Dads and all the other shows that uh, Range Touch puts together by giving us as little as a dollar a month. That would really, really help us out if you're interested in it. Uh, we also want to thank all of you for tweeting about the show and Facebooking about the show and reviewing us on iTunes and things like that. Uh, that last part the reviewing is super super helpful uh so if you like the show or think it's interesting or just admire the the will and power that it takes to put together a show about i'm being funny but uh if you like the show in any kind of way uh please review us on itunes it helps us out a whole lot and helps us with visibility which is where we are right now if you like the show please just tell other people that you like it that's really the thing that helps us out the most at this point in time we also want to thank uh chris hunt uh the person who made that rousing theme song uh, that we use in the show uh and you can see his work down in the description below as well if you want to i don't know commission him for something or uh just listen to his albums or things like that he's got a, a an ep called carnalian on spotify that you can go check out chris hunt c-h-r-i-s space h-u-n-t um, anyway, so th that's it. That's all I wanted to say here. There's just a little ad break in the middle. It's a nice point dead in the center of the show if you, uh, I don't know, want to, I don't know, want to eat a piece of fruit. This, this ad rolls. This is like two minutes. That's enough time to eat a piece of fruit 
before you go back and intensely conscious. Anyway, so uh, I will uh, let you get back to the show. Uh, listen to Michael talking about art. Um, but uh, yeah, thanks again for listening to the show and uh, see you next episode. Yeah, no, I just, I thought this was interesting. Like, this recurring point that she makes about uh, art, or, uh, like, and literally capital A art. Um, yeah. she, she uses this phrase, capital A art, to qualify as art with a capital A. They, that is to say, uh, games, need to have some kind of artistic, critical, and or self-reflexive agenda intended to make players reflect on their medial, textual, interactive, material, or otherwise nature. Furthermore... Quote, games have to be conceptualized as art in order to qualify as art games. So, uh, right, basically she's saying, like, if, if something is made as intended to be some something art, art-y, artistic, uh, that that goes a long way toward this. Um, but also there, there need to be these self-reflexive qualities, um, which I think I understand, right? I understand why, why those are there for art, but I also think that, like, so many things are just self-reflexive by nature that it's a little bit of an odd choice to to foreground that so much. Yeah. I mean, like that's, that's the, an interesting thing here, right? So when, uh, Wolfenstein, the new Colossus comes out, right? There's a, Mm -hmm. an open political question, uh, that maybe is, is treated in the media a little bit too openly, uh, Mm -hmm. as if there's no answer to it, but like, should you punch a Nazi? Right. (laughs) <laughs> and Wolfenstein the New Colossus comes out, uh, and right before it came out, they released an ad that's like, you know, I don't remember the exact thing, but it's like, Nazi punching's good. Yes. Or, you know, Nazis are bad, which I think we can all get behind, or most of us can get behind. Yeah. Uh, if you can't get behind that, maybe this is not it's like the podcast for you. <laughs> you. You might be a Nazi, just <laughs> Yeah, if you don't think they're bad, you, you might, hmm, it, <laughs> it, you know, you might be the baddies, but... Yeah. Um, but, right, like... That's a game that is brutally, brutally reflexive in that nature. And I, you know, I think I have um, a broader take on games advertisements as being part of the game experience. I think maybe that is not mm-hmm. something that uh, most academics go for, but but I tend to be a, a little bit more open to that. But mm-hmm. all of that's to say is like, yeah, I, you know, if, if you go watch like... Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which is like an art film, but not really. I mean, it's it was kind of pushed as like a big, interesting film. It has multiple sections where it's just straight up speaking to the audience, right? Um, yeah. Like monologuing in some instances, and then other instances being like, you know, just talking about the current political spectrum and being like, that could never happen. That's impossible. <laughs> yeah. um, and I don't feel like, like, I'm sure that like Spike Lee conceives of it as art. Um, and I think that most people who just in, get involved in like that style of cinema consider it as art. But most of that movie is not like highfalutin preconception, you know, white gallery space artwork. Right. Right. It is not avant garde in the way that art is for insulin. Most no, of the time. it's like, yeah, it's not even remotely. And so I, and I understand that in her definition, like, um, you know, self reflexivity is not the only thing that matters. Right. But it, it does seem to carry a lot more weight through the rest of this book than some other stuff. So Right. For I, reasons I that I think we'll get to in the next chapter. Uh, mm-hmm. Because this is when we get uh, deep in hyperattention. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. This is the... Do, do we want to move there right now? Do we want to do that? Yeah. I mean, unless you have something else to say about that that first chapter. So we just did sort of theory, uh, and then we now we're moving into method. 
So the last thing I wanted to talk about in this chapter, just really briefly, because it does come back a couple more times, is that she evokes uh, Roger Calois uh, from Man Playing Games um, and just kind of sets up his four categories again. We've already talked about these four categories in in this podcast, but just a refresher. Um, and I think I, I kind of want to get to Calois pretty soon. Um, yeah. But just because it keeps coming up, and I think it'd be like a good thing to have in the pocket for people who are listening along with us, right? Um, so, so maybe we'll do that in the next couple books. But, um, but yeah. So basically, she says I links. Uh, so these are the four categories from Kawa. I links, which is um, like out of body uh, or disorienting experience. So uh, getting on like the spinning cups ride at a carnival, mm-hmm. uh, or playing dizzy bat. Those are <laughs> those are things that that facilitate eye links uh you have mimicry which is basically like doing a theatrical production um or taking on the the factors or persona of something different i believe that kawa actually explicitly in the mimicry section of that of that book uses hamlet as an example did you know Mm. that i did not know um, so that'll be something good to talk about when we get to that book. Uh, then you yes. have Aegon, which is direct contestation, so StarCraft II or arm wrestling. Uh, and then you have Alea, which is uh, random chance. This is dice games. Um, mm-hmm. Really just dice games. I mean, there's not... Uh, random chance doesn't actually show up all that that often in places other than random number picking and things like that. Right. Um, it is interesting here... So if when we read the Kalwa and the way that the Kalwa normally gets taught is that these um, all exist on a spectrum between Ludus and Paideia, which is mm-hmm. Ludus is, is rules, um, and then Paideia is like free action, uh, absolute freedom. And so normally the, the way that you talk about these is like Eilinks on, or, or uh, maybe we'll say Aegon. Aegon is the easier one here. Aegon on a spectrum, if we plotted it on a spectrum of Ludus uh, to Paideia, then you would have like uh, StarCraft II, which is all the way, or 99% of the way to Ludus, right? So it's highly, right. highly governed by very specific game rules that there's a little bit of free play within. Like, you know, you can be a cheesy player or you can be a, uh, I don't know, you can uh, do overlord drops or something like that. But for the most part, highly, highly governed. And then all the way on the Paideia side, it might be hide-and-go-seek, right? Yeah. Which has direct contestation. You've got to beat people to the race back to the tree or whatever, but for the most part, you can do a lot of different interactions. You can yell and taunt and things like that or um, fall down, anything like that. Right. Um, and what I think is very interesting here that as far as I could see does not show up again in the book, which is very, very odd. And, and please tell me if you saw this, Michael, and I yeah. just missed it. But she adds a category here. She right. says that, that there's an additional useful category um, of rhythmos, which uh, yes. rhythmos is the is Greek for rule, harmony, and rational order, uh, which for her would be like rule based literary gameplay. So like, um, I I'm, I'm having a hard time like thinking of an example immediately for it. But uh, choose your own adventure story would be this right? right? Yeah. Like in the category of rhythmos, and I think that's incredibly productive to add that category to the Kalwa. And it does not show up again in this book. Yeah, it gets mentioned. Um, I checked the index. It gets mentioned fairly briefly, like twice more. Okay. Um, yeah, I did not see it. I didn't even look at the index uh, for it. It doesn't get. It doesn't get its own kind of uh, 
attention in the way that the others do, which is odd because it is her addition. <laughs> yeah, um, and it's good. Like I really, I, I think it's a yeah. productive and useful uh, thing because it, it kind of breaks the 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 problem with Kawas categories is when you start plotting them on that um, on the Ludus to Paideia spectrum, you you kind of it forces you into believing that rules are kind of a meta system around yeah. these forms of game. But in fact, that's not really the case, right? Like they're, they're not, so they are more part and parcel of some games than others. Um, and so I like the idea of creating a category for it. Someone should do something with that. I'm, I'm disappointed that it doesn't get like kind of a big read uh, in the book. Yeah, no, that, that first part where she sort of discusses it is really where she discusses it the most, and then it just kind of gets, like, glancingly mentioned um, twice more much later on. Uh, mm. So it is it is a strange a strange deviation from everything. But then we get the, the next chapter, which is kind of our... Is it the last theory chapter? Um, it is, yes. I mean, it is... The, if the first chapter was theory, this chapter is method. Uh, but it's also like more, more theory and then some method. <laughs> yeah, um, and, it, it, and it is oriented around an essay from Catherine Hales, kind of very mm-hmm. famous uh, senior scholar. I think she's actually retired. I think she retired last year. Yeah, I um, think she did. But but theorist of literature and cybernetics and posthumanism, mm-hmm. um, kind of a big, you, you know, kind of. Uh, she is able to thread the needle between big philosophy and kind of practical application. Um, yes. And is one of the first people in her, whatever the field of media studies is that kind of coheres around her, one of the first people to really do that and, and make that shot uh, right. in a powerful way. So, um, Right. So for, for those listening at home, if you are not familiar with Hales, uh, and if you're familiar with me, <laughs> she is the third third most cited scholar in my dissertation mm. right so uh like that tells you something i get if you if you're familiar with me and stuff that i do and talk about then that probably tells you something about the sorts of things that she talks about um and of course we're very very different scholars but like she talks about things in ways that are very useful to me as a scholar of literature who does a lot of weird technological media stuff yeah a uh, really a uh, really diverse set of work too uh, mm-hmm. of what she what she was interested in uh and really like you know it, it is it, i'm not belaboring that i'm not trying to belabor this point for people who are not familiar with hales but it is impossible to understate the impact that she has had on like seven fields yes <laughs> seven disciplines <laughs> right so yeah so it's just a a big thing to do and i say that if only to characterize if only to couch what i'm about to say which is that I think that this essay on hyper and deep attention that gets really, really heavily relied on in this chapter is mm-hmm. very strange. Yes, and it's made all the stranger by the fact that I think deep and hyper attention are extremely useful concepts. Absolutely. I, <laughs> right? I, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's this weird situation where I love these ideas. I see how insulin is using them, and then I also actually kind of disagree with the way that Hales formulates them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I right? think I have like some, <laughs> I have like some real methodological issues with the the Hales essay, which like you know, as part of our prep for this podcast, big things that that uh, we find interesting in the bibliography, we go and read. And so I read this Hales essay, 
while I was reading it, and uh, probably the deepest dive I've done into an external resource uh, for the show in a minute. But but Michael, what what is hyper and deep attention? All right, so <clears throat> broad strokes, deep and hyper attention are uh, two different modes of essentially paying attention. And Hales, when she's talking about these, is drawing from work done by cognitive scientists. Um, so for uh, general purposes, deep attention is a kind of very close, studied, uh, but slow, right? Very methodological way of paying attention. And for Hales, uh, the way that she uh, would, she aligns, she, this is close reading, right? In, in kind of the, the traditional literary sense. So when I sit down and I read a poem, um, even if that poem is only six lines long, I can reread it and find all of these different resonances between different words, different connotations, like all of these images that are coming up, and you can write an entire essay about a poem that is only eight lines, providing it is a, you know, sufficiently good and interesting poem for you. Uh, so that is deep attention, right? That that traditional kind of close reading. Um, hyperattention is what, in, in Hale's, Hale's article, um, is the, the, the new thing on the horizon, the new thing that is kind of coming to bear in, in culture, uh, which is attention that is, uh, I'm trying to give a good and charitable way to put this, um, because she's not that charitable. Uh, it is a, a type of attention or like an, an, a way of expressing attention that is very fractured. Um, this actually touches to some extent, I think, on the conversation we had last time about immersion. And this is why I think deep and hyperattention are, are very, very useful. Um, because in some ways, I think that this uh, dichotomy solves the problem that I have with immersion as a concept. Uh, which is the idea that when a game is working, you are just like literally immersed in it, right? Like you, you, you aren't uh, like thinking about things outside of it. Uh, you're not getting your attention taken by something else. Uh, when in fact, what I think games do is sort of bounce between deep and hyper attention uh, by having you focus very closely on certain aspects, and then you have the the sort of downtime when you're traveling from point A to point B, and you're like sorting through your inventory or something like that, um, and you're doing all sorts of like busy work essentially uh, while the game proper is is sort of on hold. Uh, so, does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Yeah. yeah, I think the image that she uses to mm -hmm. um, to illustrate these is is, is uh, instructive and I think probably helpful. So she says that yes. uh, deep attention is uh, like a teenage girl with her legs draped over a chair reading, I think, Pride and Prejudice. Right. Um, and this is Hales. This is what Hales. Says. This, this is Hales. Is this is, this is yeah. Hales's image. Yeah. Um, and so she says that deep attention is is that girl reading Pride and Prejudice. Uh, hypertension is her younger brother playing Grand Theft Auto. Yes. On on the floor beside her. Yes. This is a very idyllic 1980s image in my mind, but... Uh, you are absolutely correct, Cam. Like, what I thought when I read this, and the essay itself, I think, is like 2007 or something, but I remember yeah. thinking, like, this is very quaint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Like, in my mind, the television is built into a wood-paneled console. Like... Right, like that's yes. that's that's what I see in this in this image. Um, right. But yeah, that basically <laughs> that he is getting hyper stimulation through his experience with Grand Theft Auto. 
uh, and she's getting like this deep, intensive, uh, linear beaming of information into her brain from the text. Right. Um, and so, uh, yeah, the insulin takes this from Hales, uh, and she basically makes the makes the case that uh, games, uh, and here's where our, you know I think she and I would probably agree, and specifically for her, like these these literary games, these art games, uh, strategically play different modes of attention off of one another. Um, that is to say, like a a literary game is uh, approaching its audiences or its reader players uh tendencies toward one direction or the other so the gamer uh the stereotypical gamer uh goes for hyper attention and in Hale's article she she links this with um various like widespread concerns uh in that i don't even know if this is still a concern now as much as it was when she wrote the original essay right but about add and adhd discourses or discourses um diagnoses uh for young people um and I think, did you already say this, but like her original essay is a, uh, it is a pedagogical essay, right? It's not really about games or media. It's about like, uh, how do you teach, how do we as scholars who are trained to do lots and lots of deep attention, um, teach students who, because they have come up in a certain type of media ecology, uh, are much more at ease with and much more kind of given toward hyper-attentive uh, methods of engagement. The the way that this works is pure pathology, right? Mm-hmm. That hyper-attention is only conceived of as a negative. Yeah. Um, and, and I just, I find that to be, like, for someone who whose scholarship is so focused on the varied modes of interaction that people have... Um, it's just this connection up to, it's not just neuroscience, which is what you kind of signaled earlier, but it's to like broad psychology. Yes. And that's the part that I find a little bit weird. And she, she, uh, even borrows from like this kind of popular press book that I think is called generation M. Um, in order to do it, it just, it doesn't feel really like a Hales piece. It doesn't feel like it has the rigor of a normal Hales piece. So this is a quotation from it that I found particularly strange. Um, she says, my hypothesis can now be stated in terms that link it with ADHD. The generational shift toward hyperattention can be understood as a shift in the mean toward the ADHD end of the spectrum. And like, there's some sentences I've cut out here. And then she continues, whatever the case with ADHD, there is little doubt that hypertension is on the rise and it correlates with an increasing exposure to and desire for stimulation in general and stimulation by media in particular. And I, I, I don't know, like, this, this feels a lot like, I don't know, like, broad cultural diagnostics that get to blame new media for all of our problems, or, like, the anger of smartphones, or right. too much screen time, right? I mean, yeah. is it, is the problem, because one of her big pieces of information, and, and sorry to kind of go off on this weird tangent, but I do, I think it's an <laughs> important deep dive, right? Like, one of her pieces of information is she cites this, this, uh, scholarship that says um that reading is at the very bottom of what students do with their time basically Mm -hmm. and she she uses that as a stage to make this this broader argument and like immediately i'm thinking of well are students reading a lot on other devices and they don't consider it reading 
Like, that's my, my first kind of, like, conceptual thought. And the second is, like, is this a problem of hyper and deep attention, or is this a problem with the fact that that students are massively underserved by an educational system that doesn't teach them to read, right? Like that's yeah. a very real problem. Like I, you know, I teach at a, a large state university and I have issues with students who come in who, who cannot write a sentence and that is not their fault. Like this is not an individual failure at any level. This is a, yeah. a structural failure of, of education systems. And I just wonder like, is it hyper deep attention or are students or just people who are being surveys, surveyed are they cut off from structures that would allow them to have deep attention like are they just not given the opportunity to do that anymore right 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 so uh yeah one thing i guess to kind of point out about the hales piece is that she makes the point that um as is she's a literary scholar started out that way complete i think um and i'm a literary scholar like we are people who are trained to do this deep attention right like you and i and hales like we are trained to do this um and it's sort of suggested in in the article that our students should already know how to do it or like more than they do and it's like well i don't think so right like i had to go through a lot of school before i got a, got as good at reading as i am like yeah, i, I just, honestly <laughs> what, like where would they learn like i just i don't think that you get the skill set like i don't think you get deep attention Unless uh, a or access to it, right, as a method, because yeah. it is a method of engagement. Unless a you are predisposed to enjoying reading, right, mm-hmm. which many people are not, uh, or b someone teaches you to do it. And I don't think that like reading a separate piece in Wuthering Heights in high school is going to get you there. <laughs> yeah, right. Like that, so, I, I I kind of like begin to disagree. Like as much as I agree with you that. Like these are hyper useful concepts that really do help break some of the problems in in mainline game studies or some of the the things that I see as problems in mainline game studies. It is built out of a out of a structure that I just don't think I agree with, <laughs> which is bizarre. Yeah, no, it's it's so strange because um, yeah, no, and I went back to, to the Hales piece and read it and was disappointed by that because insulin really doesn't deal with this right she she takes these terms and she implements them more in a way that i would want to see them implemented as essentially like different uh strategies for making demands of the reader player's attention um i do not necessarily agree with insulin's follow-through right which is that uh through this process so as insulin would have it um these literary games these art games uh do this thing where they uh counterpoise deep attention traditional like literary modes of paying attention or like let's say scholarly modes even of paying attention or aesthetic modes um deep contemplation in the romantic sense um with uh hyper attention uh so if deep attention is what you do when you're reading a book per per hails uh and hyper attention is what you do when you're playing a game um for insulin hyperattention is the kind of like basic mode with which we approach video games right we we expect to kind of have uh, a lot of like numbers going up a lot of menus to sort through there are things exploding people shooting at us we have to shoot at them like whatever there's all this stuff to pay attention to in a game and 
the uh, sort of desirable state, supposedly, uh, for the gamer is to just be constantly taking in all of this and like sorting through all of the information and responding in inappropriate ways and progressing and getting their points and the next level and all the coins. And uh, it's almost a kind of um, rapaciousness, right? Just like a- attention and stimulation for the sake of such. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that is how we normally approach games for Enslin, uh, what literary games do is they strategically uh, break into that that space of uh, traditional immersion and cause you to like present you with something that you need to pay deep attention to rather than hyper attention to or conversely right they start you in a in a deep attentive mode and then they throw you into a hyper attentive mode um and the effect of this as she says is that uh the players then become quote more enlightened self and medium critical consumers which is a pretty rosy way of of imagining what the result of this is i don't think i necessarily agree with that um but I think also, like, the way that she is employing deep and hyperattention is much more useful than, or, like, it's not just much more useful, it's very useful. And then, like you, I don't know what to do with this since it's coming out of a framework um, from Hales that I'm not entirely on board with at all. Yeah, I, I mean, what I think of the counterexample, like, I agree with you. I don't think that, like, there is a, that the awakening that insulin is seeing in the kind of consumer Um, I don't think it's there, and I think a really great example of that is in the Assassin's Creed games. So, uh, you know, starting in Assassin's Creed 3, but really in 4 is, like, where this is super, super apparent. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you do do your time travel whatever stuff. You know, you're back in time in the memories of your ancestor doing assassination stuff, blah, blah, blah. And then, so we'll just use Assassin's Creed 4 for an example. And then (laughs) you are... uh, transported back into the contemporary day where you're like someone who works at a game development company basically who is Mm -hmm. making who is sifting through memories ancestral memories of humans in order to make like a good experience out of that right and to me like that's 100 the kind of wax and wane of hyper and deep attention she's talking about like you get the ultimate massive stimulating game of Assassin's Creed and all the adventure and climbing and jumping and blah 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 and then you get these incredibly slow first person segments that basically ask you to like read emails for a long time <laughs> yeah and and like like go out and talk to someone in the food court and like come back slowly and sit at your computer and like maybe explore a little bit but not in all of them and people hate it like people absolutely hate it and they i mean they hated it so much that they removed the contemporary period stuff from i think two assassin's creed games in a row unity and syndicate both got wow. rid of them and and but i i mean i think it's brilliant i think that 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 Assassin's Creed thing is the example of this happening in AAA gaming franchises. And the consumers just said, I don't want it. And the game development company just said, okay, fine, we won't give it to you. <laughs> like, it didn't change a consumer. Yeah. And that is, okay, that is fascinating because I, I didn't play Assassin's Creed past the first game um, because I just was not that thrilled with the game itself. Uh, but it also had that structure where uh, you you weren't a guy in a game development company, right? And that you were uh, you were Desmond, who mm-hmm. you were like being held captive by by the evil uh, organization. Um, but uh, it had by Abstergo? Same... Come on. <laughs> Get your reference right. Yeah. Uh, yeah, the Abstergo, who are who are the Knights Templar, is that correct? <laughs> they Yeah, they're the Illuminati slash Knights Templar slash, yeah. you know. 
Anyway, right, like, I remember playing that game and uh, loving that, right? Loving that you had these, like, extremely gamey uh, sections when you were in the past, and then the, uh, like, intercut with these, like, these little interludes where you're a guy being held prisoner, and the most you can do is, like, sneak out of your cell and read other people's email. <laughs> yeah, that's a, or, like, listen to people have a conversation. Right? I, yeah. I loved that. I loved that, and it's um, very sad that, well, I mean, I love that. I'm not surprised that pe- other people didn't. <laughs> and it, it's back so. now. This will, this will make you feel okay. good, though. It's back. Origins brought it back, so. Good, great, yeah. great. I got a copy of Origins with my with my <laughs> new microphone that I have. So uh-huh. <laughs> everything's coming up, Michael. Yeah. Um, but but yeah, I mean, I think that you know this is another case where like maybe maybe a bigger purview of of, of uh, objects to look at might have, might have helped out here, mm-hmm. uh, or or allowed some um, I don't know movability to the model, but. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the, the kind of payoff for this chapter, too, is similar to the one beforehand, right? Which is that fundamentally the way that games play with these forms of attention moves the chains in some way, right? Like it, it's pushing things yes. forward. And that forward is ambiguously defined. Right. And this is uh, uh, also how she ends up setting up. And this is going to be sort of difficult to talk about because she makes a chart and it is an extremely important chart for this book, but it's also very hard to talk about a chart in a way that makes sense to people who are listening to a podcast. Um, but uh, she essentially makes a, uh, a chart that she calls the uh, literary uh, ludic spectrum mm-hmm. or the, the LL spectrum. And the, well, probably like put up a picture of this or something on, we, on the website. We will absolutely put up a picture yeah. of this. <laughs> uh, but to sort of describe why this is important for the, the deep and hyper attention, right? Um, so if, if traditional reading is mostly deep attention and uh, ludicity or gaming is mostly hyper attention, she makes this chart where she essentially like... Uh, makes again i'm trying to describe a chart in a way that makes sense uh she creates the the literary ludic spectrum that uh basically asserts that as literariness uh declines ludicity rises right if you can imagine uh a a chart that has two uh linear mostly linear functions graphed uh and they're kind of an x like that's that's what we're looking at whereas literariness is going down ludicity is going up um so the types of attention that one pays of course are being charted along this if one is mostly deep attention and one is mostly hyper attention but then along say like the literary um, line. She is then charting certain types of, of digital art and games. So she starts uh, with something like digital or kinetic digital literature is something she starts with. And that is very low on ludicity, but very high on literariness. Um, uh, code works, generative literature, literary 3D environments, etc., etc., etc. And then the place where these two lines meet um, is interactive fiction slash drama. And and then from there, yeah. uh, ludicity spikes. Yes, at like a logarithmic rate or an right. exponential so rate. This is right. This is not like a purely uh, like this is not a symmetric x. It is uh, like 
literariness is just going down, right? It's not got a nice gentle slope. And then liter or ludicity like slowly increases. And then like once you hit interactive fiction and drama, it is skyrocketing. And after that, you get poetry games, literary auteur games, and what she calls quasi-literary games, which are a thing that she does not talk about in the book. Um, yeah, I'm assuming that's Assassin's Creed and Call of Duty yeah. and things. So, like these things that we're identifying that that yeah. I think probably fit further along the chart, but yeah, I think, I think that makes sense. And it's not like she says this and then she just ignores it. Right. She says at the end, like I didn't have enough, like I don't have enough experience, knowledge or space to talk about all of these things, but these categories. Right. And um, so in quasi literary games is one of, one of those things. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes your domain's just your domain. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so this is how uh, Ludo stylistics is supposed to work. Uh, is it is a method of looking at these these digital objects or these gamey objects, uh, these literary gamey objects, and uh, finding a way to place them in this chart, right? Somewhere, uh, like basically a way of kind of visually representing their ludicity as it relates to their literariness, or vice versa. Yep. Um, and so that's what the chapters are. <laughs> uh, so every chapter after this basically is a argument or, or a reading. Sorry, I'm just marking my page with my chart in so I can flip forward in a second. But every chapter after this is like looking at particular clusters of works and where they fit on that chart. Um, and so we're not gonna sp we're not gonna talk about every object or every chapter from here on in. Um, mm -hmm. If you're interested in how this chart like how the toolkit gets applied. I think we've talked in a big broad way about the toolkit that uh, insulin gives us, but if you're interested in, in this and if this piqued your interest, just get the book from a library or buy the book. The book is not super expensive. I think it was like $25. Yeah. Uh, or something like that. You get a nice hardcover book and you can like dig deep into that, but we're not really going to spend time um, in these so much as uh, giving you like a big broad idea of them. Right. And she, uh, her the objects that she talks about in these chapters um, are interesting because they are fairly minor. Uh, I had not heard of most of them. I don't know about you. I I think I recognized like five things in this entire book. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. just just to so for people reading along at home and and for us on page fifty four, I just totally missed this part of the chart. But she actually does give a definition for mediality. Um, so she says the aspects of mediality, just for for uh, oh, I see this. Yes, pro, uh, you know, posterity's sake, uh, platform, hardware, software, program code, ergodicity, and textuality. But yeah, some some highlights here that I think are that I just want to talk about really briefly that are kind of in these chapters that are pulling out uh, particular readings of texts. Um, there's a reading that happens here of a few different works. So like. Um, Prince of Persia is in here, and then mm -hmm. Samaras too, and she uses this language of or this term that I find super helpful, and I and I I hope that like other people in game studies will pick this up. I but the the problem is is it's uh, this idea is buried halfway in the middle of this book, um, <laughs> of heuristic ergodicity, um, and it's basically just her her way of talking about texts that have to be learned to be read or played meaningfully. And I find that to be a really interesting, uh, you know, kind of additional or follow through concept for something like bogus procedural rhetoric, which yes. is something that we will uh, at some point read on the show or talk about on the show. 
because it's a like heuristic ergodicity implies like well let me say it this way for bogos there's kind of this like uh, equation model of games which is like you have particular rule systems and you have particular content that is then um procedurally uh, processed it is processed through the game and then the yeah. output is a particular kind of experience for a player right, right. Um, and so procedurality is kind of this um, way of talking about how ideas and concepts get communicated through games I mean it's it's a mode of rhetoric but here it's a heuristic ergodicity as a concept allows us to build on that and say actually there are ways of building forms of necessary engagement that make you go through a process first and then you can get whatever the kind of intended content uh, is from the thing. And so she uses Samaras 2 as this kind of like 2D point and click adventure game that gives you no information on how to play it as a way of onboarding you into the experience. And I, I don't think that this is like, this is not a new argument, uh, or at least this is not a unique argument, I guess I should say, because you know, on one hand, we do have procedural rhetoric, which is, gets us a lot of the way here. But then I also think about like Anna Anthropy's "To the Right, Hold On Tight" article, mm-hmm. that that in itself is also not particularly new when it is written, but that says that the first screen of Super Mario Brothers teaches you how to play the entire game, and it does it purely through that design of that uh, kind of opening little section. Right. Um, so yeah, I just wanted to highlight heuristic ergodicity as a as a term that people should maybe uh, get on board with. I'm I'm definitely going to use it myself. So yeah, for these reading chapters, essentially what um, what Insulin is up to is she is pulling in a, a fairly wide variety of objects and uh, charting them along the, the literary ludic spectrum, uh, seeing kind of where where things fall and kind of testing and clarifying her definitions. Uh, and a lot of these things are, I think, fairly fairly obscure. They're very artistic. Uh, they're they're not minor literatures, I guess, in in the Deleuze Guattarian sense, uh, but she's looking at a lot of like interesting, like flash poetry. By which I mean poetry um, that is uh, that operates in in flash animation environments, right? Um, and she gets up into hypertext. She talks about Aaron Reed's interactive novel Blue Lacuna, uh, and just. just trying to get give you a sense right uh if you haven't read this book of of the fairly fairly broad ground that is covered in what is not at all a very long book uh and then she kind of capstones all of this uh with a reading of a tale of tales game uh from 2009 called the path and that is probably the thing that is most recognizable as like a a video game uh among all of the all of the major texts that she's reading yeah, and, and it kind of, it's a adaptation by Tale of Tales, which is Araya Harvey and Michael Salmon. Salmon, Salmon, I, 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 European, he's European and I'm American, so I'm sorry for the mispronunciation. Um, maybe I'll even be able to say the word pronunciation, too. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a, an adaptation of Perot's version of Little Red Riding Hood, kind of loosely. It gives you a bunch of different characters, which are kind of uh, women at different stages of their life. And you have to navigate this, like, big forest that is uh, full of symbols, basically, uh, you know, for lack of a better term. And, and you have to interact with those in different kinds of ways in order to progress the story forward. It's kind of about trauma. 
Right. Uh, right, right, right. It taps into a whole host. Basically, it doesn't just tap into, like, uh, Parole's version of Little Red Riding Hood, right? It taps into kind of, like, the, the, the cultural place of Little Red Riding Hood within uh, European, like, Anglophone uh, culture where there's, all, there's, you know, a long history of reading Little Red Riding Hood about... As, as a, you know, in terms of gender, in terms of psychoanalysis, um, and the game itself has, is it nine? Like, nine yeah. Little Red Riding Hoods, right? Um, so, like, it it becomes variations on this theme of all of the things, like, this story that is kind of, like, embedded in, in our super consciousness, and uh, all of the different things it can come to mean, or has been made to mean, uh, all get kind of put on display here. Um and as a game, uh, Insulin says uh, that this is sort of set up to demonstrate uh, the movement from Paideia to Ludus. Uh, so going back to what you said, Cam, from uh, the idea of sort of childish free play to uh, structured and rule-bound play. But at the same time, this is not presented as... so. In the path, right? You, you, the the nine little red riding hoods that you play as—they're um, all sisters, uh, and it's not clear if they're all actually sisters or like in terms of like diegetically what is going on. Like this is a very like surrealist, almost impressionistic game. Um, but we have these nine girls, and we start with the youngest one and we move up to the oldest one, um, and they all have similar but different stories and their ages reflect or rather their ages impact uh like how they understand their own story so like the youngest girl um who is supposedly kind of like the paideia kind of uh exemplar is sort of the most traditionally fairy tale-ish uh and then by the time we get to the final uh Little Red Riding Hood, who's, they all have names, by the way. They all have, like, different specific names. They're all, like, uh, women's names that are also uh, colors, like, shades of red. Um, and I bet I don't remember what they all are. They're, like, <laughs> Scarlet and Carmen and things like that. Right, Scarlet and Carmen and Ruby and so on and so forth. Um, and by the time you get to the last sister, who's the oldest one, sort of the, the, the most mature, um, we have... Uh, I can't remember exactly how she puts this, right? But uh, basically... There are three strategies for this game that this game implements, according to Enslin. Uh, one is slowness. So it takes a long time to play the path, right? It takes a long time to get through all nine of these uh, characters. And not in like a normal JRPG way where it's like, oh, okay, you need to like grind for 80 hours. It's more like the game itself is set up such that uh, you do not move through it quickly, right? You do not navigate quickly. Uh, the game is not interested in letting you like run and gun to the next plot point. Um, so sort of formally, right, that is one way in which it sets itself apart from other types of games and that it also employs for Enslin uh, derive and what she calls the elusive fallacy. Um, so the slow game, right, that, that ex exploration uh, of the world of this game happens very, very slowly. I think it takes something like... It doesn't take like two or three days to actually play through this game. Um, I've never finished it, so yes. Okay, yeah, uh, yeah. I think uh, it takes like three days if you're just like really going at it <laughs> um so uh what happens right is that we uh get put into a world that encourages sort of slow and methodical movement rather than running and gunning as i've already said um and this then gives us this brings us back to the situationists because it uh 
it renders the the player reader or reader player um sort of drifting right it puts them on the derive because there is not a kind of clear okay soldier like you need to get to the next checkpoint and fight the covenant soldier or like whatever um you're just kind of like drifting through the game at this very strange almost like well, comparatively glacial pace um and then there's also the elusive fallacy which uh she calls a purposeful deception where a game instrumental and this is not i'm not quoting right this is my sort of like uh repackaging of what she says it's essentially when a game instrumentalizes the player's tendency to inductively reason uh so like when you when you are familiar with kind of the vocabulary and language of games you'll know things that like oh this is a white box with a red cross on it that means it's going to heal me if i pick it up or something like that um in this case uh the game uses what we know about the story of little red riding hood uh, to kind of make you think that things are going to go differently than they do, right? It's constantly sort of playing with your expectations of, like, what is the wolf here? When are we going to meet the wolf? Um, it brings to mind certain assumptions and associations and then undermines them, right? Yes. Um, so. But, so I think the elusive fallacy is yet another term in this book that is great. Like, yes. I think that is an awesome and useful thing. And it's yet another instance where, like, the application is is very, uh, or it's just not where I would have gone with it, and not would have <laughs> thought about it. So, uh, on one, uh, let me, let me. I even have a page number written down for this. So, on page one fifty three, let me see if I can read the little section really quickly. Um, two, 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 two. Oh uh, well, no, I can't. So it's just like a long paragraph. But the the basic um, claim here about the elusive fallacy is both what you just said, right? Which is they uses kind of uh, formal cultural knowledge about mm-hmm. it to, to play with your expectations. But it also, she says that basically that the UI, like, so the interface elements, so like the map and like this little wolf claw and like this white border that's, that it's unclear uh, what it's for, all of these kind of uh, screen elements that their lack of clarity is uh that is part of the elusive fallacy because it's taking part of our knowledge of game systems and kind of throwing them back to say like oh actually this does not produce the type of knowledge that you think it does right which i have sympathy for i think that is true but also i'm i'm curious i mean i'm curious if that is always the case and i guess the difference is that insulin is very heavily dependent on the artist's intention in yes. this right like your 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 work doesn't get to be art unless you can you think of it as art you know as we talked about earlier so maybe you know if someone is purposely intending to confuse you with your uh with the thing then it's the elusive fallacy but if they're not intending to confuse you then it's just bad ui <laughs> and i don't know where that that rests right uh, but i find the the concept awesome like i think it's very good i'm, I'm i want to I want to do that. But yeah, I guess the, as I was talking, the, the definitional parameter that she has set up for herself means it can only be the one thing. Right. Um, which I don't know. I'm not super, I don't think I'm that into intention. She puts a lot of weight on authorial intention. And I think that's fine, especially for the things that she is talking about, but also it is less helpful when you get into talking about objects that are made by much larger teams or don't have a kind of centralized uh, auteur behind them, 
Right, which is why this is, like, she calls this an auteur game. And when she charts it, I think this is really interesting, actually. When she charts it on her literary ludic spectrum, um, this hits right at the intersection of literariness and ludicity, where she says interactive fiction and um, interactive drama uh, sort of, like, live. So... Mm-hmm. Like does what the I don't know what that necessarily means, right? Does this is this interactive fiction then? Is it interactive drama? Like she never like I'm not saying she had to, right? But because she said that this is what lives here, um, it makes me wonder exactly like what this game is then. Um, what is the difference between fiction and drama in this system? Yeah, that, yeah, that's something that's not really played out in this book, yeah. right? What is what is fiction and what is drama? Uh, right and what are those two two things but also like um i mean maybe some of that that helps here right so when she talks about the quasi literary game you know Mm -hmm. that we were talking about earlier kind of the far list the far end of the list i mean she says that that type of game is mist and siberia both of which are like very important games in their respective genres like siberia is a big game in uh, like three D point and click adventure games, and Mist quite literally like invents a genre, right? Yes. Of, of particular <laughs> kinds of games, and and so in, in my notes I, I wrote that like what might have been more helpful for me here as far as the application of this list is picking a particular game genre. So like choosing Mist is like your a central text for a chapter, and then mm-hmm. plotting all the Mist likes that are either more literary or more ludic. So, you know, for example, um, the Journeyman Project, which is like a mist-like game with time travel, it it allows you to talk to people and then turn yourself into that person to have different <laughs> conversations with people. It, it's a fascinating kind of game. But but so it uses like the mist format of like there's someone talking to you and I'm like this assumed player. And it allows you to like gamify that a little bit more by like talking to the blacksmith and then going over to the fishmonger and then pretending to be the blacksmith, right? <laughs> and so, so right, and that's like, that seems to be more on the, the ludic spectrum as opposed to like, you know, there are newer Myst-style games, more recent Myst-style games that I would say are just like straight-up art games, right? But that use mm-hmm. the basic formal properties of Myst to be like that minimum ergodicity thing, the hyper, or the... Um, Gosh, the, the language of this book is so difficult for me. But the minimum uh, um, interaction model that's right. over there with literariness. And maybe that would have helped me kind of understand how this chart works a little bit better in the book. Uh, one thing I did want to talk about uh, from your notes. So this is something that Insulin mentions. Uh, and this actually touches on this issue of like games and tragedy, which has come up a couple of times now also. Um, uh, but she says that uh, the path is, is essentially a kind of tragic game. Um, because, and just to sort of also bring to the fore how this game is being kind of, uh, self-reflexive in the, about its, about its gaminess in the way that she, uh, thinks, you know, art games usually are, um, because it is this kind of progressional story where you start out as the youngest sister and you go up to the oldest sister, um, the, the thesis that Insulin floats for this is that, uh, it is speaking back to the, uh, primary sort of like gaming mindset of systems mastery that uh you know as you play the game you get better and like the outcomes improve uh because for each each girl each woman each person in this game um it's a bad ending right it never ends well for for little red riding hood um and even when we get to like the most mature sort of like well-traveled like 
adult uh, version of of this character. Um, as Insulin points out, right, that the sort of suggestion of the game is that uh, child childish curiosity leads to trauma and violence for women, um, just as much as like playing by the rules, right? Like rule govern play and like knowing where you are and who you are is just as likely to result in unneeded, unnecessary, like just almost arbitrary uh, violence against you as a person. Um, so in this way, right, the, the game challenge, like uses a kind of uh, feminist framework to interrogate the overall idea of systems mastery in, in, in like a gaming environment. Um, so uh, this brings her into talking about uh, hamartia, Right, the uh, Greek word for the the hero's fatal flaw, the mistake that uh, he has made, um, because if it's a if it's a Greek play, it's always going to be a he. Um, but like the mistake that he has made that he does not know about that the audience does know about, and that's sort of the tension in in classical tragedy. Um, you know, for instance, the fact that everyone watching uh, Oedipus back back in. Um, you know, Athens, uh, they know the story of Oedipus, right? This is not a new story. They know Oedipus has killed his father and married his mother. Um, and sort of the, the tension of that play is, is the slow turns by which Oedipus himself comes to understand what he has done. Um, and so the problem with this in games, of course, as multiple people have pointed out, is that you are supposed to inhabit the the player avatar in a way that makes it very difficult to uh, make that that lack of knowledge or that ignorance or that necessary moment of oversight feel good or fair or aesthetically a part of the game itself. Um, and so she says that the path in like doubles the player by uh, sort of a str like constantly changing, I guess, the player character and being so weird and almost Brechtian in the way that uh, it implements all of these normal gaming mechanics, but in ways that make them absolutely like a chore to play or unhelpful. <laughs> um, it uh, allows the player to kind of uh, assume a double role where they know what the tragic fatal flaw is, or rather like they know they know the tragic end is coming, but like they also know that that's the point. Yeah. Right. Um, which I think is interesting because that speaks to what you had said uh, when we were talking about this with you all, right? That speaks to Halo Reach. Yep. Uh, because it, yeah. it remains the most academically yeah. uh, verified video game of all time. Right. And I thought this was super interesting because this, like, when I was reading this and then I went back to your comment about Halo Reach, I was thinking about, like, okay, so, like, why does this work? And for this game, it's because um, partly, like, what the game itself is doing. Right. It's it's letting us it's telegraphing to some extent what we should be expecting from these stories, even as the story changes. Uh, but also, like, we know the story of Little Red Riding Hood and we are sort of accustomed to the ways that it can be deployed. And what is interesting then about your Halo Reach example is Halo Reach could not have existed without this like long-standing media franchise that is Halo, right? Without this embedded story that feels both important and necessary to what we recognize as, like, the mainline Halo series, the series about Master Chief, um, we needed this uh, prior kind of, like, bedrock 
of understanding and knowing that like okay in the halo universe this thing called uh there's like the battle of reach um like this happens right and it's a huge disaster for humanity uh and it's this prior thing in the mainline halo games and then finally we get a game that allows us to go back and experience that and it's interesting how well that lines up with uh like the the fairy tale example but also what i was talking about with the oedipus example right tragedies work seem to work or rather they seem to originate um in situations where the audience uh reasonably expects or is accustomed to the idea that the ending is not going to be happy yeah and and i well i think that your your point too about like the the way that particular narratives can be taken can be built upon because they become cultural bedrock. I mean, mm-hmm. this is the exact reason without talking about spoilers of it. So like, if you get the reference, that's going to be great. But if you don't, uh, sorry. <laughs> um, but this is the reason that infinity war worked, mm. right? This is the exact reason. Like we knew what was going to happen in that movie due to, you know, a, a vast second amount of secondary literature written about like what happens during the infinity war. Right. Right. Um, and then it's been, you know, ten a decade of films that have set up the bedrock and, and foreshadowed all of that kind of stuff uh, at the same time, right? To make us familiar enough with the big broad strokes that the the tragedy can be sold uh, right. to us. I think this is actually easier than it's ever been, weirdly enough, across media. Yeah. Because I think that you can, you know, this is maybe a different kind of discussion for a different kind of book, but the the, like online debates about canonicity mean that you can have agreed upon or generally agreed upon baselines to draw from, right? Mm -hmm. To find your tragedy or your drama or whatever. All right. Do we have any questions, Michael, for the, and then there's a short conclusion, but we've actually weirdly enough already talked about the conclusion over the course of the the episode. (laughs) It's, it's really just kind of a, you know, a, a real academic, you know, pointing to directions where this could go and, and, you know, reason certain things weren't covered kind of mm-hmm. conclusion, uh, right. not a big argument. All right. So, uh, we actually have, um, we have a question <laughs> from someone in the ranged touch discord, uh, scooping who asks, uh, I, every time I say scooping, I just like want to say it Scooby. I'm sorry, scooping, mm-hmm. um, scooping asks, uh, or rather says, right. This is the only book I have read on the, on, um, interactive fiction, hypertext, etc. How does uh, literary gaming, uh, as a book, I guess, relate to other books on the same subject, or is it the only one to map the literary ludic spectrum? Uh, and also, in addition, should the book be rented or bought? Because also, the other co- the other questions we got in the Discord uh, were asking us about how the guns feel, and you know, was the were the jumps floaty, things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I think the guns feel great in this book, personally. So I'm just mm-hmm. going to like not even bother acknowledging those questions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but to Scooby's point, um, I would say that uh, so as far as I know no one else has really picked up the the literary ludic spectrum. I think, um, I mean, I'm sure, like, Insulin herself uh, probably has expanded on it, and I'm sure it's probably been um, shouted out, but I don't think it's necessarily been widely adopted as a method. Um, And how does this relate to other books on the same subject? Well, weirdly enough, despite being a kind of, like, uh, hypertext interactive fiction practitioner, I have not really read a whole lot... uh, theoretically about it um 
but what I have read has not been like this at all. <laughs> uh, yeah. I imagine I imagine her other books are probably closer to to this in tone. But a lot of the books I've read on IF um, are, uh, I mean, so I think of um, oh gosh, gosh, I need to think of the title real quick. Uh, Nick Montfort has a book. Yeah, twisty little passages. Be, uh, yes, or, and he yeah. He also has a book, I think, just called Interactive Fiction. Oh, maybe. And he also did uh, Expressive Processing, too, which is yes. uh, related. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yes, yes, yes. Um, so I would say, like, Nick Montfort, as uh, uh, some, he's kind of a touchstone for this sort of writing. Um, he is a lot less clinical, I guess, is how I would put it, right? There's, there's no real, like, charting, uh, I think, uh, in, in his work. Um, He's a lot. Yeah. I mean, he just does the move. Maybe this is the difference between like the literary uh, ludic, you know, Mm -hmm. how it's related is that Monford, you know, especially in Twisted Little Passages, just straight up cleaves off things that are not interactive fiction, right? Like he's interested in a very particular definitional silo. Right. And anything outside of that, he's just not interested in talking about. Um, And so he solves the problem of the spectrum by not having one. (laughs) Right. Um, and then I think other like other books that write on uh, or other authors who have written on similar texts. Um, so uh, Shelley Jackson, Patchwork Girl, comes up very very briefly in this book, uh, much more briefly than I would have thought. And uh, Patchwork Girl is a uh, um, an interesting sort of like uh, interactive hypertextual novel that's uh, it's doing a lot of things, uh, but in broad strokes, it's a kind of like feminist postmodernist rewriting of uh frankenstein um mary shelley's novel but also sort of the life of mary shelley herself um and i feel like most of the writing for instance that or, that i've read on that um is very much m- more like traditional literary scholarship so Catherine hales writes about uh patchwork girl um uh, i don't think murray did did she was Patchwork Girl like the year after the year? Yeah, after I think Patchwork Girl is nineteen ninety seven, so I think it's the year yeah. it came out. So right, right, right. So she she doesn't have the opportunity, um, but I feel like uh, it's the sort of thing that that uh, type of scholar, um, that sort of like basically people who are more based on the literary side of things are more interested in talking about, and they talk about it in ways that are more akin to the way that you talk about literature. Yeah. Uh, so. Do you well, have there you it? go. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what is what is your opinion on the gun feel? Um, zero out of ten. Zero out of ten. Does yep. not like the guns. Ten possible Cameron guns. Does not like there guns. are zero in it. <laughs> uh, you can find the show, other range touch shows at rangetouch.com. You can contact us at ranged touch on twitter you can support the show on patreon you should a lot of people have been supporting the show on patreon since last episode we want to thank all of you uh you're keeping it afloat you bought michael a microphone you bought me a microphone if and my voice i guess sounds different that's why and uh assassin's creed origins too because it was yeah. cheaper to buy the yeah. bundle <laughs> it was it was like 20 dollars cheaper to buy the bundle of the microphone and assassin's creed origins than it was to just buy the buy the microphone so Capitalism, I yep. guess. It's great. <laughs> you know what? Uh, for, for every uh, horrifying uh, moment of, of uh, evil travesty, 
there's a good bundle so you know it all evens out in the end <laughs> uh you can you can find us uh at game studies study buddies uh at gmail.com if you want to send us a question or uh you know just want to let us know what's up or tell us you like the show or tell us you don't like the show uh, any feedback is totally cool for us um and uh, we'll be back in in a month with another episode do, do, do you want to commit you want to just do the Calwa book yeah, let's do let's do Kawa. Yeah. Okay, let's do that. We're gonna do we're gonna read Man Playing Games by Kawa, published originally I think in nineteen sixty some odd the early nineteen sixties or maybe in the late nineteen fifties. It's got some good parts, got some bad parts. <laughs> <laughs> some real problematic, some real problematic parts for being such a, an important part of uh, game studies in general. So looking forward to digging into that and talking about that book. I I, I find it quite interesting. Yeah. And uh, just to clarify at this stage, it was originally written in French. Are there multiple translations or do we just have the one? I don't think there are multiple translations. There is just one. Okay. All Um, right. Uh, We have not reached the point where, like, you know, it's like when we're talking about Nietzsche or something where there are going to be like seven different translations uh, for these old foundational game studies folks. So that's good. Yep. (laughs) Uh, so we'll, and we'll post on, on various social media accounts to do that. Michael, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at wernisdead.com. And you can also visit my website, uh, find some things that I've written and some games that I have made correlatedcontents.com. Sweet. You can find me on Twitter at C Kunzelman and, uh, yep, that's it. Well, that's we the, to, the episode. I was going to say, I was going to say, we need to figure out a sign off. What is our sign off? Beep, beep. <laughs> beep, beep. We're gone. <laughs> beep, beep. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right, let's do it together. Are you ready? Three, two, one. Beep, beep. beep. Goodbye. <laughs> okay. <laughs>